Hello everyone, this is Matt Ferret, author of the Prepare for Medicare book series, and welcome to another episode of The Matt Ferret Show, where I interview insiders and experts to help light a path to a successful retirement. Come say hello at www.themattferretshow.com for YouTube videos, show links, notes, websites referenced, quotable quotes, and the complete show transcript. Make sure to check out the 2022-2023 second edition of my best-selling book, Prepare for Medicare, The Insider's Guide to Buying Medicare Insurance. You can buy it on Amazon or ask your local librarian to order it for you. Are you in your 40s, 50s, or 60s thinking of downsizing or moving? Have you thought about renting out your primary home or buying a duplex and renting out the second unit? It seems like there are a million shows on HGTV that make rehabbing, renting, and flipping look super easy. Is it? Trying to figure out how to retire early and use rental property cash flow to supplement or even replace your income? Even if you have a few rentals already, how do you level up? Group investing? Syndication deals? When do you deploy cost segregation strategies? Only have a vague idea of what those last three things are? This is the episode for you. My guest today is Whitney Elkins Hutton, and she's Director of Investor Education at PassiveInvesting.com and a real estate pro. This edition of The Matt Ferret Show will give you an insider's guide to real estate investing, and it's neatly organized into thirds. The first third is all about the basics, how to decide whether or not you want to be a landlord, property management approaches, house hacking, and single-family homes. We explore how to turn your primary home into your first rental and manage it remotely. The middle part of the show hops into the second level of real estate investing, multiple single family homes, real estate syndication deals, commercial real estate, apartment buildings, and how to think about all of that as a business. The last third of the show gets into things like cost segregation, real estate professional designations, real estate tax strategy, and other types of cash flowing assets outside of traditional residential or apartment rentals like hotels, car washes, and self-storage units. Enjoy. Whitney, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. This is amazing. Tell everybody what you do, how long you've been doing it, and how you help people. Yeah, definitely. Well, where I'm at currently, I am the Director of Investor Education at PassiveInvesting.com. I've been in the private equity space for about six years full-time, um, give or take a little bit. Uh, but I, that's not how I got started in real estate, but before I move on from, you know, what I do now, you know, we specialize in multifamily hotel car wash, um, and self-storage passive deals. We also have a real estate debt fund, but how I got started in real estate, uh, was actually as a single family investor completely by accident back in 2002. So I've been in real estate for over 20 years. So you specifically concentrate on you said passive investing, but I'm, but uh, I'm, it sounds like a lot of different real estate, commercial, residential, single family home. Um, is that right? Well, so, you know, professionally, you know, I'm in the private equity space. So, you know, I, I, what I do is I connect retail investors, private investors into like larger commercial, commercial assets. So they can, you know, not only partner with us and reap the benefits of cash flow, equity, diversification, tax benefits, but also so they can have the five freedoms in life. They can have their you know time back. They can have freedom of location independence, freedom of choice. You know, of course, you know, maybe even like, you know, have financial freedom, especially, you know, that's really important for retirees. 
uh, you know, that's what we've been working towards, right? Um, and then also freedom of impact, right? Like the later, I know for me, and this is, you know, you know, as I go through my accumulation phase, I really want to understand, you know, have that space to be like, well, what kind of impact do I want to have in the world? Like what, you know, what kind of mark do I want to lead, leave? Now, I also have my personal investments. And so personally, I'm very heavy into the passive um, investing. Uh, but I also have single family rentals. I have short-term rentals. I have my own self-storage. So I can, you know, we, we can go down any one of those rabbit holes if you want that. Well, let's go down that one first. Uh, let's talk about single family home. When people think about, you know, do I get into the rentals? You know, do I get, do I get a rental as mm-hmm. part of my investment portfolio? Or instead of, you know, if I'm thinking about downsizing, instead of selling, should I keep it and just rent it out? So let's talk about single family homes first. That's usually kind of the gateway drug of real estate investing. So talk a little bit about if you're, you know, in your 50s, 60s, 70s, um, how should I think about if I'm not in single family or I'm not in any type of real estate actively as in physical real estate, we're not talking REITs here. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about renting out my home or buying a rental property. How do I begin to think about this as it, as it, the impact to my life? Is it really passive? Is it passive active? Um, How do I start to think about this from your standpoint in my fifties, sixties? Okay. Let's just say forties too. Well, okay. So uh, that was like 15 questions. I know I do that. I'm really sorry. Do you want me to re-ask it? No, 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 no. I, you know, I, you know, keeping it light here. Right. So let me like start unpacking this. Like I wholly believe that, you know, everybody should have, um, and, uh, real estate in your portfolio. And even if you're very heavy already into real estate, you should have a mixture of controlled real estate, real estate that you tangibly have your name on the deed or your company's name on the deed. And then also, uh, maybe pepper in some passive investments, right? I, I know some, some, uh, you know, retirees have a deep portfolio of passive investments, but I always encourage people to have their own controlled real estate. Now, back to that question, should I actually add real estate to my portfolio? That I think that answers it. I, that's a resounding yes. And why is that? Because real estate is the number one asset class that has you know, made millionaires and billionaires over time. And it's because it pays you in multiple ways. Okay, so if you think about it, um, gold is just an inflation hedge. It, you know, right now, it, you know, if you bought uh, twenty, uh, spent twenty dollars and got an ounce of gold in the nineteen twenties, all you did is maintain your purchasing power. The same thing, you know, in the nineteen twenties, you with that twenty dollars of gold, you could get a nice, you know, if you're a man, you could get a nice suit, tie, shirt, maybe some shoes, maybe a belt. Today, that same ounce of gold, maybe like around $1,300, is still going to get you the same thing. It's still going to get you a shirt, you know, completely clothed as a man. So it maintains, helps maintain your purchasing power, but it's not cash flowing. It's not, it doesn't provide equity. It doesn't provide any tax benefits. Real estate does all that. So you get capital preservation. You, and this is, this isn't all real estate. You have to buy right. Um, You can get capital preservation. You can get cash flow from it. You can get equity appreciation if you're buying in the right markets. You can get tax benefits, especially if you are, um, you know, moving into the rental real estate. So, next question is: I'm thinking about getting into real estate. You know, what's kind of some glide paths into real estate? Well, you know, starting with your home. If you're thinking about either moving or downsizing, if you are in a great location to where you can cash flow the property 
Okay, very important. You know, it needs to be able to pay for itself minimally and maybe bring in, a, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month. If you can cash flow it and it's in a good area where it's going to stay in the path of progress and give you a reasonable chance of appreciation, go ahead, turn it into a rental. Okay, and then go buy your next property. Okay, that is one of the easiest ways. And one of the one of the key things is, is that you actually have probably already locked in a 30-year fixed rate loan. And that is an amazing tool at building wealth, especially for people that are just trying to get into real estate. You know, uh, they may be hearing all the people that have like a hundred rentals and now they're using private lending and commercial real, you know, commercial lending. You know, you can get an investment property and use the 30-year fixed rate loan. That is unique to the United States. Other countries do not have that. That's why we have a lot of foreign investors coming into the United States to do this. Now you mentioned in here house hacking, like should I house hack? Well, I personally, that's how I started out, um, you know, in real estate back in 2002, completely by accident. I bought a house with a significant other relationship fell apart about a month later and I, everything was under my name and I panicked and I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Uh, so I stuffed it full of roommates. And, you know, people who didn't mind living in a construction zone, uh, maybe I traded a little bit of pizza and beer um, to get certain things done on the house, um, painting, flooring, stuff like that. And, you know, it was a great, it was a great community, but I was, uh, you know, when I put roommates into the property, I was house hacking because I, it wasn't until I sold the property that I realized I actually made money on the appreciation of the house about $52,000 back in 2002, which, you know, I'm in my twenties, you know, so, uh, that was amazing, right. For me. Um, I, I felt like I had won the lottery, but also these, these roommates had been paying for all the expenses on the property. And I was putting about two fifty three $300 into my pocket every month. And I was like, wow, how many more times can I do this? How many more now, times can you do that? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. The, the eyes, you know, the light bulb goes off, right? Exactly. Now, if you've been living by yourself for years and, you know, with your significant other or spouse, or maybe, you know, just individually on your own, maybe you've gotten the kids out of the house. Do you really want to take on other roommates? Okay. Now, it doesn't mean no. that you need to buy another. Probably <laughs> That's my better. answer, by the way. If the kids are out and it's just me and the <laughs> wife or just me, no. Yeah. Uh, I know people who go get a puppy. We just got a puppy this summer. And I'm like, that is, no, we're not doing that again. Like, once everybody's gone, they're gone for a little exactly. while. Um, but you could go buy like a, a duplex or a quad and maybe live in one unit of the property. And you can still access that 30-year financing. That might be appealing um, for people. Uh, so that, that is an opportunity. You could still house hack, you know, you could move into a single family property and bring in roommates, or you could go buy a multi-unit property and live on the property and bring in other, um, you know, you're sharing a wall with them. So, but you get to kind of create your own community there. So, so there are a few different ways to get involved. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to step on your mic there. So if, if, uh, what I'm hearing is, and thank you for answering my multi-part question. I, I have a bad tendency to do that. I'll try to not do that anymore. Uh, but if what I'm hearing, it sounds a lot like if you are an empty nester or you're thinking about downsizing, um, think a little longer. Um, look at your house as what it is. It's an asset and may still have a mortgage attached to it and maybe 100% paid off and see what you can get for it uh, on the market right now. Rents are hot, rents are high. How would you advise someone to go about do that? Just 
look in their, uh, uh, you know, look at their network of people and see who a real estate agent is? Is there a special type of real estate agent? Do I go right to some sort of a home inspector or assessor? So let's say I'm trying this for the first time. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in renting my house out and I'm moving to Florida or something along those lines. What do I do first? You know, really, there's a few simple tools on the internet and it's amazing over this you know, over my like real estate career, there's so many online tools um, have come online. It, it really puts the power in the owner's hands. So you can simply go to Zillow.com and look at their rent estimator. Um, there's another website called Rentometer. You can just go on there and you know drop in your address and maybe the the bed and bath and what you think you might get. And it'll kind of give you like a temperature reading, like, you know, you're too high or you're too low, or you're kind of in the sweet spot for what's renting in your area. Now rent cycle. So it's really important if you're considering this, um, look at what rents are in the summer, fall, and then winter, they tend to dip a little bit lower. And so, so if you're like, and, and, and what I'm trying to say is if you're initially considering this in December, uh, that is like, nobody likes moving during the holidays. You know, not a lot of things are renting. So uh, you might see, you might be a little disappointed to see that rents are pretty low during that holiday season. So, but look again during the spring, like April, May, June, and see like if things kind of, you know, better align. But that's a good idea, you know, easy way for you to get an, a kind of an idea of what your rents are. Now, you can also go work um, with a, a property management company or a realtor that does property management. And they can also, you know, much like uh, when you're buying a house, you get a comparative market analysis of what the value of your house is. They can also do a similar type of analysis for what the rents are um, based on the amenities that you have on the property, the condition of the property, and, you know, just where the area that it's in. Now that, that kind of gives you a little bit of clue, but you know, uh, really uh, the definitive rent that you're gonna get is gonna come into two additional points of contact. One, when you actually go to rent the property, right? You're now a competitor in the marketplace. Place. The renter is going to tell you what they're willing to pay, okay, for the property. So if you list it too high and you're not getting anybody, you need to probably start dropping your rents or adding in additional perks or concessions. Mm-hmm. Um, alternatively, if you are, uh, say you're refinancing out, you've owned it all cash and you're trying to refinance out a property and move it to an investment type of property, you're going to get a different type of appraisal. And the appraisal is going to be the value of the property, but they're also going to add on a rent and anal- that appraiser will do a rent analysis. And that appraiser will tell you what they think the market rent is for the property. Now, I, I have found that, that the property manager usually has the better data. Um, but unfortunately, the appraiser, unless you have a lease in hand, the bank is going to take that appraised value for rents as the next point of data as you get lending on the property. Makes sense. Thank you. So before, because I want to move into the whole like now, how do, you know, how do I add rentals and we'll do single family homes and then maybe go from there. But before I move to that topic, if I think about personalities or being a handyman or a handy woman, is there a certain type of personality or a um, certain type of investor that uh, that does better than others in single family homes? I think I've read a lot and heard stories around, you know, certain point, you know, if they don't hire a property manager, nobody wants to fix a toilet at midnight, right? Nobody wants to get 15 calls a day 
if something's wrong. And so, you know, is there a certain personality or any advice that you've got for someone who is thinking about renting their home out or buying their first rental property in terms of what types of personalities and what, what do you have to think about before really jumping into this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of like back it up a little bit because, you know, really it, it's determined based on your goals. Like, and one of, one of that kind of conversation you have to have with yourself is like, you know, beyond like, do you need cash flow, equity, diversification, tax benefits is how do you envision yourself say five years from now, 10 years from now, like, how do you want to spend your day, your time? Now, the reason why I really encourage people to think about this is that'll kind of give you, you know, if you have that, you know, kind of thought in your head, now you can actually start building the business like you want to. Um, so you may have to initially start managing properties on your own, but, you know, maybe you put systems in place and build out your own management company or you hire a property manager. Um, there are very few personalities that I come across that are like, I love real estate and I love managing it myself. I mean, the, the property manager is quite frankly, one of them, I, I, I feel one of the most thankless jobs because they have two customers, they have the tenant and they have the, the investor. Um, so I self-managed, I, we still self-manage two of our properties, um, because we actually spend time there and, you know, we want to be pretty hands-on with it, but everything else I learned very quickly that uh, what I valued most beyond getting my goals met between the cash flow and the appreciation is that I valued my time. And whenever it started running over that value that, of what I wanted, which was my time back, that's when I was like, okay, who do I have to become in order to hit this goal? I need to learn how to build in systems. I need to learn how to build a team. I need to learn how to interview a property manager. And so, um, you know, maybe, you know, kind of like not the, the answer that you're expecting, but I would really encourage anybody listening, um, you know, ask that question, you know, what do you want? Why do you want it? And who do you need to become? Those are three questions to ask. And that'll really help inform you. Do I really want to be a hands-on investor? Um, or uh, do I want to place it with um, property management? I will tell you when I added in property management that allowed me to scale faster. And I actually, um, you know, that property manager was able to work with the tenant far better than I could. They could do so many things far better than I could. I also encourage people don't get into the real estate game with the idea that you're only going to have one rental property. I was going to mention that uh, yes. right before we moved into the multiple piece, because there's, you know, if you're just getting one, you know, maybe you make two, three, four, five, maybe even a thousand dollars a month. Um, is that worth the hassle or do you really have to have an eye towards expansion? I would, I mean, and that's if you're going to be active and, you know, rental real estate is the income is considered passive by the IRS. However, it's anything but passive in regards to your time. So, uh, you know, but it is a lot of way, it's a, probably an, an easy glide path for people to get into real estate. It's one of the most easily accessed ways to get into real estate, because if you've bought your own personal property, you know, you're like, well, I can just either vacate this one and go get an, my, another primary, or you know how to do that. Or buying a rental property is very similar to buying a primary. There's just a couple little extra nuances to it. Now, I would always add more. Why? For scale, I mean, I, at minimum, get 10. 
because you're going to be um, 100. It's not 100% occupied and 100% vacant. You're either making money or you're losing money if you only have one. Okay, think about it. I you, maybe you get a thousand dollars a month when when they're paying rent, but if for whatever reason the property is vacant or the tenant can't pay rent that month, you still have bills. You still you know, even if you have it 100% paid in cash, I mean, I, I, I've had this conversation multiple times, you're still paying insurance, you're still paying taxes, you still have expenses, you still have to maintain, maintain that property. So, um, you know, definitely, I would say, you know, if you were getting into rental real estate, think about getting into 10. Now that said, there are other, if there are somebody listening to this, and they're just like, I have no desire to have 10 rental properties. Uh, is real estate, am I out? No, because that's where passive real estate comes in. And, you know, where you can actually partner with an operator and they actually acquire the property, do the due diligence. They run the day-to-day -day, um, operations of the asset. They have property management in place. And you just have to do the due diligence on the operator, vet the market and vet the deal. So there's multiple ways you can get started in real estate. Thank you for that. And that's a great segue to to this part of it. So aside from renting your own home out or ha house hacking or getting into, I guess that would be dipping your toe into the, the rental game um, and the need for scale there for really diversification purposes, as you mentioned, right? You have one, the rent is either being paid or it's not. But if you have five or 10, you got a nice mix. There are different levels, just like everything. So next level would be uh, you mean this would be REITs, right? Uh, real estate investment trusts that you could just invest in almost like a stock portfolio. And then you've got multifamily slash apartments, you've got commercial, and then you've got syndication deals or, uh, or, or something of the like. Can you walk us through those different levels? Yeah, I actually, REITs are their own kind of um, different beast because you actually don't get um, the they knock out a lot of the tax benefits for an investor. So I don't even put them in the, in the mix at all. Um, uh, they are a way to get exposure to the real estate market, but as far as like creating wealth, um, you know, you would probably have to get really versed in private REITs to maybe even achieve your goals. So I kind of like set them aside. They're, they're like, a, they're like a whole different road. Um, now, uh, there, yeah, it can be a gliding path, but there's nothing to say that you need to go from a single family home and then you have to buy a duplex or a fiveplex or a tenplex before you can buy, you know, get invested in a syndication. Deal. I think a lot of people think that though, because you've got real estate yeah. books out there and they're like, well, you're not, you know, you can't buy, you know, there's almost like a big boy and big girl club. You know, you can't be an apartment investor unless you've, you know, put taking your training wheels off. It's almost like this club. So mm -hmm. explain why right private real estate investing or syndication deals is, is different yeah so let's let's actually kind of unpack that like what is a syndication investment so it just means a group of investors come together to take down a property um you know in the space we're playing in we're taking down you know say like a multifamily property it's going to be 60 million or 80 million i don't have that cash in my bank wait hold on <laughs> let me check uh, no, me either. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, it, but, and, you know, we get to leverage the ability of the group to come together that's performing different functions. You know, the, you know, we're stronger as a group than we are individually. 
And so um, the group is divided then in the limited partners and the general partners. Now the limited partners are the, generally like the investor, you know, you know, myself included that are, are bringing capital to the assets, you know, put for part of the down payment, kind of like down payment on a single family property, you know? So essentially uh, I'm going, Matt, Hey, listen, I'll be the general partner. Will you be the limited partner? You bring the money and I'm going to bring the time, knowledge, expertise, the ability to get credit and lending. And oh, by the way, I've got a few other hundred friends that want to go in on this deal. You game? I'll do all the work. We'll split the profits. How do you like that? Sounds pretty good. Yeah. So, and and now all not all deals are the same, right? Now this and that's where you it's you get into you know syndication real estate one on one. You have to learn how to vet the operator um, because you're investing in a business now, right? You're handing over the day to day control to an operator. So the operator is the deal. And I know so many people that either move from stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. You're trained to look at yield, right? We're all trained to look at yield there. Um, or they're moving from their own single family property or small multi because and they were the operator. Mm -hmm. right? And so now you're 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 now handing all that responsibility over to an operations team. So the number one, and I, I this is where the the fallacy happens. They start looking at the returns of the deal. You need to understand who you're investing with, the team. Who are they? Do you know, love, and trust them? What is their track record? Um, you know, how conservative are they in their underwriting? What markets are they in? What is their investment philosophy? What is their risk philosophy? How are they mitigating that risk? You need to be able to ask those questions. Then you can get into analyzing the market and the deal. But that is, you know, really, um, it. you don't have to have a single family property or even invest in a duplex to jump right into group investing like this. Really? Okay. So what are the qualifications? There's no, there's no, there's no grade. There's no grade book. Nobody's like, you know, saying pass fail. Okay. Like, <laughs> I bless you, Matt. Now you can invest in your first multifamily apartment. Well, deal. And I'm not wrong though. That does happen, right? I can, I can go get a loan on a single family property. It's like my own primary house. It's, it's pretty easy, like you said, but when I, if I run across, a, I don't know, an eight apartment complex and I feel like I want to invest it all of a sudden, all the banks are like, wait a minute. And they start, I mean, I mean like they oh working, yeah, because right? you're the operator. They're grading the operator. That's why when you do group investing, um, that's the, one of the strengths the operator is bringing to the table because they have the knowledge and expertise. They have the track record. They have the team in place. They've already checked out. They're, they're the ones getting graded in order to get the loan. So, you don't have to do that. You don't even have the loan in your name. So you've eliminated that risk as well. So I'm just a limited partner of a business that's set up to be uh, to be a real estate acquisition, rehab, renter, sell, property manager, all in one, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's that's the thing. You know, each operator is going to bring their different type of investment strategy. Um, you know, for us, we like core and four plus assets, so we're looking for a a class assets where there's not a whole lot of capex or deferred maintenance. Um, we like value add strategies, those type of things that are, you know, pretty easy to pull the lever on where we can increase the income, decrease the expenses or add additional streams of income to a property. Um, now there's other types of operators out there as well that um, take more of a development 
type strategy, um, deep value add, where they're buying a lot of properties that are pretty distressed or in distressed areas, and they're putting layering on a business plan. And depending on the operator, they may or may not have a large amount of risk in that business plan as well to achieve their return. And uh, so that's where you just have to, that's where the education comes in. You have to get a, be a little bit savvy and learning how to figure out what that operator's business plan is. And does it match your goals and your risk tolerance? And that's where I see most limited partners, you know, investors that are wanting to get into the space, uh, you know, stumble a little bit is that they get so starry eyed by the returns that they forget to ask the right questions. So they ask, they end up with an operator that they probably should never have given their money to, or they end up in a, a deal um, where they're just biting their nails because they're just like, I did not know it had this much risk. Um, I did. I thought it was going to get cash flow and I don't get cash flow for three years. Like what's going on? Like, and that's where I see most kind of, um, you know, people stumble when they get into the space. So in the space in general, how, where do I start? I mean, uh, do I, A, do I have to be an accredited investor? Let's take a question one by one this time, instead of three at the same time. <laughs> do I have to be an accredited investor for this type of thing? Uh, you don't actually, you know, back in 2012, uh, the laws changed and, you know, these type of private equity invest in investments could open up to sophisticated investors. So it does mean you have to have some sort of knowledge about real estate. Now, again, there's no checklist. There's no test. There's no, um, the Securities and Exchange Commission aren't putting out a spreadsheet going, okay, when you have a conversation with an investor, here's all the boxes you have to check. Um, to be qualified as a sophisticated investor. Um, you know, you are just having a conversation with that operator and they need to feel like you understand what the investment is and that, you know, you have a good understanding of how it works, what the risks are, what the timeline of investment is, and just how that partnership relationship's working. Now, there are a lot of deals out there that are open for accredited investors. Now I'm going to turn the table on its heads because remember that sophisticated investor has to have a conversation and kind of prove that they know something in a way. An accredited investor, they just have they do have a test. It's based on income or net worth, and as long as they can check those two boxes, there's other ways you can qual qualify as an accredited investor. Um, they can go in on a deal and never have a conversation with the operator and never actually have knowledge about real estate. And that's where really where we try to have conversations with every single one of our investors, because we want to understand um, that they fully understand what the partnership structure is like. We want to know them, their goals, what are they trying to achieve and really match them with the investment that's going to help them achieve those goals. Um, but yeah, do you have to be accredited to get in the space? No. Um, it's helpful because it actually op opens you up to more deals to look at. So let's say I'm in my 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, mm -hmm. Single family homes pretty, if I want to do it, I feel like I know how to get into it. Where do I start in something like this? So this is attractive. I don't want to necessarily have to deal with a property manager in a single family home or rent my <laughs> own home out or half of it or house hack. But I, this sounds really interesting. It's a very different uh, environment though. Where do I start? Do I read a book? Do I go to a website? Where do I start with this in terms of getting used to or getting familiar with this concept and who's out there? And you mentioned a lot of, basically, I have to do my own due diligence. How do I start doing that? Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and, well, and a lot of times like people just want to fire Home Depot and Lowe's, especially if they've been you know, to managing their own assets. Um, I know that's kind of like what, you know, where I hit the wall. I was like, I'm done. <laughs> no more calls to Home Depot. Um, so I all offer a resource if I made to people, I do a, um, a Tuesday masterclass. It's called passive investing made simple. And, you know, really the whole point in that masterclass is to kind of be a mentor in the space. Um, so people can, you know, start gathering that information, you know, it, it's connected to passiveinvesting.com, but certainly that, it, you know, I'm bringing in the knowledge, um, the expertise, and also connecting with people to, legal experts, tax experts, insurance experts. So they can really just build up their knowledge in the space and feel confident going to their first or next deal. Um, so if I may, you can find that resource at passiveinvestingwithwhitney.com and you can get on that list. Um, that's a great place to start. Um, I wish that was available when I was learning how to get into this space. I unfortunately had a few trials by fire and I'm like, oh, don't do that oh, I should add that question to my checklist. And so I'm happy to, you know, help people kind of shortcut that path um, and not make some of the mistakes that I've made. Now, there's another great book by Brian Burke, um, The Hands-Off Investor. You can find that on Bigger Pockets. I think even maybe Amazon now. Um, that's kind of another great recap. Um, and then, you know, as far as finding operators, you know, you can find them. My favorite way of finding great quality operators is going to conferences, real estate conferences. And I'm not talking about like the ones that are like $99. I'm talking about the ones that are high end conferences, like best ever conference. Um, you know, we have our own conference, the multifamily investor nation conference. Now it's, you know, seeing, it seems like it would only be geared to uh, multifamily. It's not, we open it up to car washes and hotels and uh, self storage as well. That's just how we got started with it. But the that's where you're going to be able to kind of look the, you know, operators in the eye, the whites of the eyes and you know, shake their hand and really get to know them as a person. Um, other ways you can, you know, do a Google search if you want. Um, but I also like, you know, um, attending webinars that, um, you know, operators are doing. Um, I like going to sometimes those online conferences where operators are, but my favorite way is really going to those in-person conferences. Thank you. Tell me about um, this type of investment uh, and financial planning or wealth managers. I'm, you know, my background is in Medicare. And one of the things, points I make multiple times on this show and in my book is that you know, everybody's got their little niche. And a lot of times financial planners don't know Medicare. And a lot of times financial planners don't really know the best way to, or when to file social security. May or may not, you, you may find it, you may not, you got to go to the expert. You're the expert, your group of operators are the experts. Is there a gap in the knowledge around this type of investment vehicle for, uh, you know, midlife and later life and cash flow in the financial and wealth management space? Or is everybody pretty in tune with it? And uh, if I take something like this to my financial planner, you know, am I going to get a thumbs up or a thumbs down or an inquisitive look? It depends. Um, and I, I know that's like the classic um, real estate answer. Um, I will say largely on a whole, um, financial um, advisors don't know anything at all about, I don't want to say anything at all about real estate. Um, but the private equity space, they're just not savvy in this area, um, partly because they don't get paid to 
connect people to these assets, right? Like, so if it's a product they can sell, um, they're going to study up on it, right? Um, they're going to be able to, you know, be more knowledgeable about it. Um, now, I don't know if there's a case where a financial advisor is a broker dealer in private equities. I could see that relationship working that they might have it, but then they're only going to get paid by the, the private equity groups that are going to pay the broker dealer fees, right? So you're still not going to get like open access to everything, or at least not through the financial advisor. Now, conversely, you can do your own re uh, research and take the information to your financial advisor and see how it might fit into your plan. Um, if, if there's somebody that's savvy, they should realize they might help you ask some questions and kind of, you know, you know, connect, they should connect you to legal and tax help. Um, but yeah, you know, really that, that space, um, we're actually trying to do some great educational work in that space and really kind of break down these, these barriers. Cause it's really, um, they get, they get paid very differently and, you know, money talks, <laughs> unfortunately in that area. Um, yeah, it's kind of, kind of like a, a topic that I have to kind of, I don't want to say walk on eggshells for, you know, with, but, um, there's just a lot of disconnect. I mean, in, in that space. Yeah. It seems like it's out of there, you know, it sounds similar to Medicare and social security. It's related, but not really in their wheelhouse. And so that's why sometimes uh, I ask that question, you know, how much, if I'm going to start with my accountant or my lawyer or my, uh, you know, financial planner, if I have any of those. Mm -hmm. You know, what reaction am I, and I'm, am I going to get? And I think you, you spelled it out uh, kind of what I suspected, which might be a little, little, uh, little head turn, little what? Well, your, your lawyer is going to want to see the private placement memorandum. They're going to want to see all the legal documentation and read through it, right? They're looking, they have very different um, roles in your, in your team. And I, I highly suggest you, you need to consult with your team before you make any sort of investment point blank, anything you should consult with your team, but they're all looking at different things. The lawyer is looking at like, how can I mitigate risk? That's it. That's their number one thing. They're not going to look at this and go, Hey, these are all the ways that you can make money. That's just not, that's not what they're going to do. Right. They're looking, they're very cynical people. I'm sorry. My uncle's a lawyer. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I got, we got one in the family. I think every um, lawyer would probably buy that. They take that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they, and thank goodness that they are, you know, they are who they are. Okay. Um, my accountant looks at it and is like, okay, how are you earning income? How are you being taxed? What are the losses and how can you use them? They're looking at they're again, they're not looking at how you can make money. They're looking at like how you can, you know, take advantage of all the things that are coming off the tax form, the K-1 tax form. Now, a good tax strategist might be able to help you, and they should be able to help and inform you on the type of income you, you have coming in and how you can use the losses and how that might help with build your wealth. Um, but that doesn't mean CPAs aren't tax strategists. Not all CPAs are tax strategists. Just let that one sit a little bit. So you actually have to go find a tax strategist. Um, but financial advisors have a very different role. They are looking at you know the income, the returns and the growth over time. Um, it's just that they have a very narrow band of things that they actually recommend. There's a whole wealth of investment opportunity. There's just a very narrow band that that financial advising space actually advises and recommends on. So, um, you know, I'm sure there's somebody out there for sure. You mentioned the different types of deals out there, yield, cash flow, appreciation, and some balance of those plus, plus tax. If you're in your, I don't know, 
let's call it 40s and 50s versus 60s and 70s. And, you know, the goals here are uh, could be different. Is there have you seen people do different strategies by age or by band? Um, and, and if so, what do they look like? Yeah, so it goes back to the goals and the risk tolerance. So, and where you are, you know, in your time investing horizon. So, somebody who's still more in the needs to accumulate more in their portfolio, um, you know, I would say they they need to, um, you know, look at deals that are providing cash flow and appreciation for certain. Now, um, some people may like disagree with me on that. They were like, if I'm in my accumulation phase and I have a good job, like I don't need anything with cash flow. I have this conversation regularly with people and I 100% disagree with that um, for two reasons, right? If my goal is to sometime flip that switch and start living off that cash flow, if it doesn't, if it isn't coming in already, I now have to wait until I get into assets when it can flip on. Two, I, the, if the asset doesn't cash flow at all, it tells me that it's not stabilized right now. For me, that's not a risk I want to take. I'm a very conservative person. I want it stabilized now. Now I'm okay maybe earning 3% in year one and then getting to seven, nine, 10% by year two, three, and four. I'm okay with that, but it's stabilized now. So that tells me that it works to, in today's environment without the business plan. Okay, stick a pin in that a little bit. Um, as I get older, maybe I want to flip that switch and go into assets that, you know, I now maybe I'm in my sixties, I have, you know, the, the accumulation that I want to achieve. Um, now I just need that money to make a ton of cash flow. Now I'm going to look for deals or tranches in deals that yield higher cash flow. And I maybe like set aside that equity piece. Now I, I did miss, I don't think you can make this cut, you know? <laughs> but I did miss one thing like on, on the previous, um, you know, scenario with somebody who's still in that accumulation phase that says they don't need the cash flow. Um, get into assets that do cash flow now, just don't spend the cash flow. allow it to accrue. So you can get more, get into your next investment, right? Set it aside, add to it with savings, you know, compound that in like, you know, you know, add more investments to your portfolio. Um, but as you go through life, you know, really take a look at what your goals, your risk tolerance are, you know, and then, you know, see if that's what you want to do is shift into assets that provide higher cash flow. I see that quite often, um, you know, investors, you know, that are like in their thirties or forties that have good high paying jobs, you know, you know, they're, they're willing to take on more risks now. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to. I actually say a guard against it. Why the rule, first rule of investing is don't lose money. Rule number two, see rule number one. And that's not me. That's Warren Buffett. I mean, he, he knows a thing or two about investing. Um, and then as you move into later years of life, like, you know, really question, do you have the wealth accumulated that you want? And, you know, if you're not interested in continuing to pass that down, you know, continuing to accumulate wealth to pass it down, if you, if you can check that box, then maybe shift it to cash flow. If I'm trying to pick right now, let's just say I have zero rental properties, but I've always wanted to get into it and really love the idea of cash flow as part of my retirement strategy. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put off electing social security benefits until the, the last minute possible. I can't touch my investments until 59 and a half. And I really don't want to given what the market's done. I'm thinking about getting into cash flow, but I have zero. 
What do you see most often? Someone jumping into single family and, and building that? Or uh, would your advice be to skip that and uh, look at these uh, syndication or these uh, these bigger deals and, and being a, a part of a group? Um, I mean, again, I know it's going to get down to your goals, but you know, if I'm if I have zero right now and I and I want to do this, where would you start if you could start over? Ooh, great question. If I could start over, I well, first of all, I had to get started where I did. I didn't have a half million or a million sitting in the bank to start creating a nice cash flowing portfolio with. I had to get into single family properties. I had to learn how to scale there. Um, create value, you know, through rehabs and, you know, refinances and, and you know, tenants in order to uh, grow the portfolio that I needed in order to be able to um, transition into passive investing and it'd be meaningful, right? Um, and um, so like cash flow is hard, right? Like as if you're just taking money and you're investing in a pro property and you, you're not providing any sort of value on it, you might make you know, a leveraged property, you might make two, three, $400 a month. If you're buying all cash, that takes them. If you have, if you can buy like five properties, you know, a hundred thousand dollar properties, all cash, come talk to me. I, you know, we can, we, we can get you out of being that day-to-day -day landlord and probably grow your portfolio faster, you know, in, in passive investments, but it depends on where, what you have to do in order to get started. Um, I do want to bring up something here. Just, you know, I know a lot of people here are, you know, 50 plus, um, you have to take care and talk to your CPA, talk to your tax strategist about this. If you, if you are going to reach retirement age with more than $500,000 in your IRAs, you got another problem and it's called provisional income. And so now you have the ability, now what happens here, and I am not an accountant, I don't play one on TV, is that you now actually have um, double taxation potentially going on because it gets that IRA is going to get taxed some way, somehow. Um, now what doesn't count against provisional income, uh, life insurance, like if you're taking income from life insurance policies, um, and Roth IRAs. And I think there's one more out there. Um, so Roth IRA, because why? Because you already paid the tax before I went into the Roth IRA. The tax bill has been taken care of. That is such an amazing gift from the IRS. But if you have like a traditional IRA with more than $500,000 in it, um, you know, you need to talk to your tax strategist to figure out how can I like lessen the impact of that. And one of the ways that you can do that is with balancing it out with real estate. And now you might have to take a look with how much real estate do I want, need to acquire to balance out that tax impact? Um, do you even want to do that with single families or do you want to have somebody else do the work for you? Um, but, um, you know, essentially provisional income uh, or that, 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 that tax impact means that not only does your IRA get taxed, but also all your social security benefits gets taxed. And I'm talking, it's like 85%. With all with inflation in the headlines and with uh, home price appreciation going through the roof over the last twenty four months, um, is now the best time to start investing? The worst time, or really no different than any other time? What's your take on that? I think you need to. You know, it really goes back to principle. I mean, I think you need. How did how do the wealthy people make their money? Is that they learn to invest in any market? So while um, you know. Cash flow might be a little pinched right now in a lot of assets, you know, especially in real estate. I'm still getting 
capital um, preservation. I'm still getting equity. I'm still getting tax benefits. I'm still getting an inflation hedge because I can pass through those cost increases, um, you know, to the tenant. Uh, now, I for me, like with my single family properties and all my multifamily, you know, assets, you know, we have over 6,300 units, multifamily or residential units. We're we're very conscious about how we do that. I mean, because um, you know, the tenant can they're they're our customer, right? I got to treat them right. Um, but anyways, that is that's why real estate works is because there's you know even one pillar kind of goes soft the other pillars support you. Whereas if I'm in the stock market, I'm either making money or losing money. I might get a 2% yield, maybe. If I'm in a municipal bond, I might get a little bit of tax benefits. Um, I actually have to tax less harvest in order to get a larger tax benefit. And what is that, 3,000 a year? <laughs> I, get, I mean, I'm taking on, I think uh, I did a cost segregation analysis and you know we can go into what that is on two properties, and I'm going to have like a ninety-six thousand dollar loss I can use this year. And I'm excited about that because it's a paper loss. That's good. Paper <laughs> loss and not a real one. Uh, not a real one. No, yeah. I did not lose ninety-six thousand dollars. Yeah, well, I mean, you you touched on it. Let's hit it. Cost segregation, and that is a tax strategy. And again, all the disclaimers out there. And at the end of the show. I'm not a CPA. You said you weren't either. So this is all, uh, this is all, you know, trust and verify, right? So exactly. what is cost segregation in real estate? Yeah. So when you get in and you can do this with single family properties, I'm actually this cost segregation that I'm talking about, I'm doing it on, um, three units. Um, I have, um, a two unit that are both, uh, single family rented one's midterm one's long-term. And then I have a short-term rental. That's what I'm doing this on. Um, now the power is in scale. We've already talked about that transition into multifamily or commercial real estate. You know, I've got more apples I can pick from the tree for cash flow. I have um, the the value of the asset is based on net operating income, not based on what the market tells me it's worth. Um, I can also get scale in the tax benefits, and how that happens is that I can hire an engineer. Um, specific type of engineer and they go into the property and essentially there's an IRS schedule that tells you when everything breaks down. Okay. Cause they want you to keep your properties in good repair, right? Cause they don't want to get into the housing business. That's not their, their thing. So, um, you know, when does the light fixture break down? When do the window coverings break down the flooring all that? Well, when I hire this cost segregation analysis, they're going to break out everything that depreciates in 20 years or less, and they're going to accelerate it to the first five years of the hold of the asset. So that instead of me waiting 27 and a half years to hit all these losses for residential real estate or 39 years on self-storage um, type real estate, I can actually get that all in the first five years. And I get those losses. Now, what do I get to, why am I so happy? Because you're like, you know, joining us on video is because now I can use that to keep shelter my income on the asset that I'm bringing in, you know, uh, monthly or quarterly or annually. I can also use it to shelter income on other passive assets that I own. And depending on um, if I can check that real estate professional box on my check, uh, tax return, I might be able to use it to offset other active income. Now, again, not a CPA work with you definitely work with um, a tax strategist or a CPA that is very versed in real estate um, to because they they will model these type of losses um, 
and the impact it has on your tax situation before you do it, because cost segregation analyses aren't exactly cheap. Um, but fortunately, they've come down in price, you know, very recently. So, um, but that that is, you know, um, you know, it's a legal way to reduce your tax bill, and it's because you're solving a problem that the the government doesn't want to have any part of solving. Yeah, Maybe thank you. Harsh. No, yeah. no, that, no that's a good explanation. Better. That's a good explanation of it. Um, yeah. All right. Again, I want to be respectful of your time, but I did want to, you said said this a couple of times and it's really personally intriguing. So I thought I'd ask it if it's interesting yeah, maybe it is to somebody else. Car washes, self-storage. I mean, self-storage, you're not dealing with tenants. I mean, I guess you are, but not in the same way. And then car washes, I see them popping up everywhere. Talk to me about that. Uh, those asset classes, that's real estate, but that's different than single family or multifamily or uh, any type of rental property uh, out there in the traditional sense. Uh, yeah. What's going on in those markets? And if I'm, how do I get involved in that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so answer the questions in re re reverse. Um, how do you get involved? Especially if you want to get you know, involved passively, you know, reach out to me at the passiveinvestingwithwhitney.com. I would love to talk to you um, about that. Um, as far as like self-storage, okay, so kind of a glide path. Um, I think it's easy easy for people to jump from multifamily to self-storage, right? Multifamily, you have, you know, you're somebody like living in a unit, right? We all get that, right? It's, you know, instead of having one single family house, you know, houses, you now have like maybe a hundred or 200 stacked all on top of each other. Right. Um, now... These people probably, there's not as much room for them to store all their belongings. So they might actually have to get a self-storage unit. And that self-storage unit, think of it as the garage. Instead of just having one garage, now you've got like 100 garages or 500 garages. Now, the beauty of self-storage is that the operational expenses of these assets are pretty low, right? It's four metal walls and a concrete floor. That also means the depreciation on that is pretty low because four metal walls and concrete floor don't really depreciate in 20 years or less. It's, it stretches out to 39 years. Um, you know, self-storage is a really sticky asset class because once people normally put their, their, their um, belongings into self-storage, let's say they pay $100 a month for it. You know, I can now, their monthly leases and the next month I can, you know, you know, my costs went up. I can now pass through that cost. Maybe they went up 3%. Now it's $103, you know, or maybe it went up 10%. It's 110. Somebody's not going to like go rent a U-Haul and get all their buddies together to move across town for 60 bucks or yeah, 30. That, that's what you mean by sticky. I mean, once your They're stuff is sticky. in there, it's in there, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, cleaning out your own garage. How often does that happen? It's the same concept, right? And they, they and they cleaned out their garage and they put it in the storage unit. It's out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, uh, and again, like that inflation hedge, I can like adjust those rents on like a monthly basis. Um, this this area is still, you know, it's started uh, consolidating from mom and pop owners into like more private equity groups and now into like the larger like Blackstones um, in the past ten years. So now we transition into car washes. Car washes are in the same type of disruption phase that soft storage was 10 years ago, but now it's happening today. Um, you know, a, a lot of people that hold car washes, you know, might have somewhere between one to five facilities. 
and they don't really ever scan their mom and pop owners. They are running the, everything on their, themselves. There is no third party management. And a lot of times they're realizing that they're not able to actually make the money that they thought they were going to. They don't have like, you know, a marketing team. They don't have that. They're not large enough to be able to command, um, you know, uh, huge breaks and, you know, uh, chemical supplies or anything like that. Enter us. What we're doing is that we're actually solving this issue, um, disrupting by acquiring these properties that are undervalued right now and also building out the third party management company at the exact same time. So now we can actually create a value add strategy by, you know, commanding these, you know, larger discounts on chemicals and stuff like that. Um, we can also centralize the team. So instead of having, you know, multiple full-time employees over five, you know, maybe one or five properties, I can now share those, um, you know, out over, you know, maybe 10, 15 or 20 properties. Um, so it's better for the employee because they get more hours, but it's also better for us to man uh, manage the full-time employee costs, the labor costs. Anybody that runs a business here, what is your number one control of expense? Your employees, your labor. Um, and so it's a win-win that we're creating here. And, and, you know, we're able to, you know, just, you know, better manage, um, you know, these properties. We're also layering on um, subscription models to this. So I don't know if anybody is like, you know, you used to be able to pay like, um, you know, Netflix, you like just, you paid for the number of like videos. Now you just pay like $10 a month, right? Like well, it doesn't matter I mean, how many $10 videos you dollars and then 12 and then 19 and then. Yeah, uh, I don't even know what it is now. Don't ask me. I'm you like, know what it is? It it's enough that I canceled in the last uh, 12 months. That's what it is. And all my kids hate me for it, but I don't care. Right. <laughs> um, but so, um, so like for our subscription model, you know, and this is just one data point, you know, our lowest subscription is I think $25 or $30. Um, and, uh, the average person, you know, subscriber washes their car 1.8 times a month. Okay. So you're just like, okay, what's the margin there? Well, just take into account the chemicals, the water and the energy. Okay. And this does leave out the labor costs, but just those three alone it's about 80 cents a wash. That's a pretty hefty margin there. Pretty that hefty margin. 23 to $27 to pay labor. Now you're cranking a hundred or so cars through an potentially an hour in these express tunnel car washes. Right. And so there's, there's a huge value to that. Um, so we, you know, I don't call it commercial real estate. It's kind of a hybrid. It's a business. You're, you're investing in a business, the operational business. But we also buy the underlying real estate with it for two reasons. One, you know, we don't want to get five years into the business plan and then the landlord go, hey, guess what? Your lease is up, right? Yeah, <laughs> by the way, I see you guys are doing really well. Now, now the rent's double. Exactly. Um, also, you know, when we go to exit, we're looking to exit either as an IPO or to a REIT. They're going to want to know that that land is owned. Um, they don't want to get into the same issue as well. So that combined with the third party property management um, actually solves um, this consolidation problem that we haven't been able, that nobody's chosen to solve um, you know, until very recently. But they're a great cash flowing asset. Um, there's some modest appreciation on the back end as well, and they give amazing tax benefits. This has been really fascinating. It has been. So I know you've sprinkled in your contact information uh, throughout the show, but 
give it to us again. How can people find out more about everything that you've talked about on, on the show? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you're wanting access to all these kind of like tips and tools, um, or even like my calendar, go to passiveinvestingwithwhitney.com. And um, you can register there. Uh, you know, you'll get my contact information. And, you know, it just it's one stop shop. You can just go there. Awesome. And what question or questions that I should have asked, did I not? You know, I, th I think it's, uh, you know, really, I think, you know, especially when we've talked about that, a lot of people that are listening here are like in their 40s, 50s, maybe even 60s, yep. is what is their exit plan with their portfolio? And I don't, and I'm total buy, borrow and die. That's, that I am passing everything on. And if I, I guess it's not so much a question, but like maybe a really nugget I want to leave people is be very um, strategic in how you're going to leave your assets to the next generation. I, I do talks on multi-generational wealth like all the time. And the number one thing that I saw in my own family, but also that I see with other people is that they get in, they start gifting things. They start giving things away and it's creating tax impacts for the people that they're giving to. Um, and also they're probably, they're not being as effective with how they could pass on their uh, assets. And so really just, you know, sit down um, with a good uh, retirement strategist and really think through like, um, how can I hold on to these assets to create the most cash flow and appreciation for me now and tax benefits? And then how can we organize it and make sure that when it goes on to my heirs, that the basis gets stepped up for them and we can, you know, create win-wins for everybody. That sounds wonderful. Whitney, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing. My thanks to Whitney Elkins Hutton for a really interesting conversation. Make sure to hit the Matt Ferret Show website for all the links Whitney and I talked about, plus the full show transcript and quotes. Until next time, to your wealth, wisdom and wellness. I'm Matt Ferret and thanks for tuning in. The Matt Ferret Show, related content, publications and MF Media LLC is in no way associated, endorsed or authorized by any governmental agency, including the Social Security Administration, the Department of Health and Human Services or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. The Matt Ferret Show is in no way associated with, authorized, approved, endorsed, nor in any way affiliated with any company, trademark names, or other marks mentioned or referenced in or on The Matt Ferret Show. Any such mention is for purpose of reference only. Any advice, generalized statistics, or opinions expressed are strictly those of the host and guests of The Matt Ferret Show. Although every effort has been made to ensure the contents of The Matt Ferret Show and related content are correct and complete, Laws and regulations change quickly and often. The ideas and opinions expressed on The Matt Ferret Show aren't meant to replace the sage advice of healthcare, insurance, financial planning, accounting, or legal professionals. You are responsible for your financial decisions. It is your sole responsibility to independently evaluate the accuracy, correctness, or completeness of the content, services, and products of, and associated with, The Matt Ferret Show, MF Media LLC, and any related content or publications. The thoughts and opinions expressed on The Matt Ferret Show are those of the host and The Matt Ferret Show guests only, and are not the thoughts and opinions of any current or former employer of the host or guests of The Matt Ferret Show, nor is The Matt Ferret Show made by, on behalf of, 
or endorsed or approved by any current or former employer of the host or guests of The Matt Farrett Show.